welcome to Adult Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in this very special episode, we are interviewing Francesca Gardiner, who is a writer and producer on the His Dark Materials TV series. This episode contains spoilers for the Amber Spyglass book and the TV series. So if you've not read or watched both, please come back when you're all caught up. even explain how excited i am for everybody to hear this interview honestly honestly francesca thank you so much i love you francesca you were so great you were so on our wavelength oh honestly loved it so such a good interview from a really really talented writer Mm -hmm. i think my key words after having come away from that interview are like enthusiasm and warmth and joy and that is definitely all of the things that you're about to hear about Francesca and her love of the books and her writing of this series. Uh, She's written some of our most very favourite scenes and episodes of the entire series and uh, we loved it. We loved it. It was so great to hear about. Honestly, it was so great. It's always so fun when we speak to... Obviously, it's fun when we speak to the cast, but especially when we speak to the crew because they're the people that, like, weave this story from the very beginning. And it's so... Especially with, like, Francesca, it was so lovely to hear just how much of a fan she is of the books and how she grew up with them. And also, she wrote the last episode of season three, and I think you all know what episode that is. Um, and most of you will have seen it now. And my God, what an amazing piece of television that is. And she is the mastermind behind it. She's the person you can send the bill to for, yeah, for therapy. Every, yeah, for the therapy <laughs> for mending your broken heart. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, she is the person that had that immense responsibility of putting that part of the books that means so much to so many people into something that can be put on the screen which is ridiculous ridiculous such a heavy weight on your shoulders it's such a lovely chat and we hope that you all enjoy it as much as we did because we loved it yeah let's let's just get into it let's get into it let's just get into it let's do it i can't make them wait any longer no no Hi, Francesca. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Francesca. Such a pleasure. How nice to be here. We're so happy to have you. It's We've been wanting you for a while, and it was Dan McCulloch when we saw him at the screening that we went to a couple of weeks ago, and he was like, you have to get Francesca. You have to talk to Francesca. And we was like, we really want to. <laughs> I've been wanting to talk to you guys too. You give oh. such good, intelligent analysis on this, and I love it. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I guess we'll dive right into the questions and we'll start off with quite a broad one which is can you tell us about your journey with the the book series so northern lights was published in 1995 when i was 11 so i was like prime target for northern lights and i was given a copy for christmas by my aunt and i remember from page 1 you know lara in the retiring room with Pan, I was just in. I was in. It was done. I was completely obsessed with Lyra from from page one. 
I think I was thinking about why why this book had such an impact on me. I think it's strange to say, but in the 90s, there weren't a lot of adventure stories with girls, like girls who were strong-willed and bold. And I'd, I think I just inhaled it because I was desperate for something, a story that had depth and purpose and ambition with this mouthy girl at the at the center of it it was it was it felt like a, re- a wonderful relief um to read so I was completely obsessed and then when the subtle knife came out I inhaled that too and by that point I'd sort of infected my family with the obsession um I've got two younger sisters and we were we we would just lived and breathed it and would always talk about you know our, who our demons would be and would squabble over the coolest demon actually we used to squabble over um having a red panda demon um because which is funny because obviously pan becomes a red panda in this and um i yeah i used to argue with my sister because for some reason we didn't think that we could both have the red panda as a demon um but then um when i I was 15 when the amber spyglass came out and so it was just you know perfect love story just as it blossoms into the love story um, I was I was at the perfect age for that, and I remember we all bought my family. Every single member of my family bought a co- their own copy of the Amber Spyglass because we didn't want to wait to read it. And you could we all sat in different rooms of the house to read it, and you could hear us at different points depending who was at which stage of the book, like blubbing through the walls. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just remember loving how the writing feels like this incredible tapestry of different other different stories that have been woven together and with such intelligence and it was sort of my gateway drug to to poetry you know to to william blake to keats to all sorts of literary references that i maybe wouldn't have found in quite well with in quite the same exciting way um had i not read the book i even wrote about his dark materials for my master's um, at film school, um, my dissertation was on um, darkness in uh, childhood stories, the stories we tell children. I'm, I've always been fascinated by the stories we choose to tell children and how important it is not to patronise kids um, and to embrace, not to sanitise horror, you know, for, for children. That was a very long-winded answer. It was, was a, a perfect great answer. answer. It all resonated <laughs> with me so much, especially as we were reading the through the Northern Lights on the podcast even, because Faye came to these books as an adult and I read them probably around a similar age range that you were reading them. And she was like, sometimes I'm just like, this is a children's book. And I'm like, yeah. And as a kid, I loved it. So there is just that like universal appeal of it. They're so great. And that darkness that trusting kids will get it is so important and it's it's what leads to like kids growing up to be like spooky bitches you know like us absolutely (laughs) it was really beautiful to hear you know that you've loved it so much as a kid and it inspired you to you know read poetry and that you wrote about it in your masters and and now here you are working on the tv series adaptation that's incredible can you imagine how annoyingly enthusiastic I am every day about it? <laughs> oh, amazing. How, so it'd be great if you could tell us exactly, I guess, what your role was on the show and how you came to be a part of the show as well. So I first came to be involved in the show 
when I was invited to Cardiff by Bad Wolf. So I went to Bad Wolf Studios for a completely different project. And um, I went to talk to Shane and Dan and I walked into the corridor in the studio and there was a giant <laughs> bug on polar bear. And I was like, what are you doing here? And um, of course they were like, it's the Northern Lights before before the TV show had come out. And I, I just, I was like, I have to be a part of this. I have to be a part. You don't understand. I have to be a part of this. And um, and so I basically begged them to employ me to write. Um, and wonderfully, um, it it happened. And so I started on season two, season one. Jack had obviously written all of season one and started on season two. And I started uh, on episode two of season two. And then that went pretty well. And I ended up writing... Uh, episode six of season two, which I just loved. Um, it was, I just, I, I found it. It's so rare, I think, when you, you, you're writing a script that you know, you have a sense like in, in your bones about the tone of how the script should feel, the atmosphere and tone. Sometimes I find that the most difficult thing, but with because you've got such beautiful material in front of you with these books, and I just felt like I knew what it needed to, to be. I, that sounds, maybe sounds a little bit arrogant, but I, I just felt like I knew the subtlety and nuance that I felt in the books. I really felt quite um, evangelical about putting that in the script. Um, so I was probably a pernickety pain in the ass to for a lot of people <laughs> writing the scripts, but um, I also felt such a responsibility to do justice for the fans being a giant fan myself and sometimes I succeeded and sometimes I, I I failed and and you know but I really tried I can say that. Speaking of um the episodes that you did in season two we know that you wrote one of our personal absolute favorite scenes and a, one of the fan favorite scenes which is that gorgeous interaction between that we'd never get in the books between Mrs. Coulter and Mary Malone. How did that come about? How did you do, is it your brainchild? Did you push for it? Is it a conversation that came as a group and you were like, this needs to happen? How did you write that beautiful scene? Um, I, I think it was a conversation Jack and I had. We didn't have, there was no writer's room for this show. So that we didn't have a lot of collaboration between writers, but, but uh, season two, we had more more of that. But um, I can't remember how it, it it came up, but it seemed... I think it was Jack who had originally been writing episode six and then I, I came in and, and we were all just writing so, so much, so fast it, as, as that's what's hap what happens on, you know, TV production and um, with lots of changes happening and stuff. And I, I ended up writing, taking on episode six and it just seemed like, I mean, Mary Malone and Mrs. Coulter are my two favorite characters to write um, for many reasons. I think they're, so, they're both, they're so different um, and they're so, they're both so intelligent and such products of their worlds too. And I loved the idea of um, this combination and what they would bring out in each other, what they would see in each other. Um, but for one of the th interesting things for me about that dynamic between them is I don't think that Mrs. Coulter would be jealous of many women, I, certainly not in her world. Like when you think of where she's come from and, and the power that she wields in her world, what a, what a head fuck for her to be in our world. 
because when you when I've dug into like Mrs. Coulter and why she is the way that she is, you know, she effectively she gave up Lyra for the sake of her of her career and for the sake of this it's the sense of shame, this deep shame that was inflicted upon her by this horrible patriarchy and to see a world in which in which a woman was a, is allowed to be both a mother and an academic to see a world in which uh, an academic can publish a paper you know she goes into mary malone's office and mary malone is not somebody who needs to you know be chameleon like in her identity in her in her aesthetic to please men to 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 you know she doesn't have to play seductress she is just you know, Mary Malone is just gloriously beautiful as is, you know, and not that Mrs. Coulter wouldn't be, but I think that it's such a different idea of what womanhood could be and what is and what pressures society puts on women in these different worlds. Um, I also think that in order to make, you know, Mrs. Coulter's arc throughout or sort of wider arc throughout um, all of the books um is is so fascinating that she has to it's she's really learning how to love lyra and with the with the with the ultimate you know sacrifice ultimately sacrificing herself for her daughter and in order for that sacrifice to be valid and to be really resonant i think she needs to learn to see lyra and i really like the idea that mary has an easy access has an almost instant instinct to what Lyra needs and the two of them just connect so easily so what a sort of slap in the face for Mrs Coulter to meet this woman who seems to be able to see her daughter more clearly than she can I just thought that that was so wonderfully rattling for Mrs Coulter and and that it was sort of the beginning of Mrs Coulter's journey to seeing who Lyra really is and her quality that really excited me it was such a fun scene to write it was such a fun scene to watch (laughs) (laughs) truly it was it was when we watch the episodes we usually watch them we have like a discord server where our listeners like gather and we watch them together and obviously we didn't know that scene was coming and we were all like oh my god mary and mrs Coulter together what is happening (laughs) it was oh yeah it was phenomenal it was really great there was a subset of the fan base that was like kiss 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 as well (laughs) i love that too (laughs) i guess while we're on characters so season three such a huge season one that in the adaptation it's done brilliantly and as always with any adaptation things have to be changed switched moved around one of the things that I think we noticed and we spoke to Jane Tranter about was I guess the bringing forward of Asriel because you actually don't see him that much in the amber spyglass um or really he's actually not that present in most of the books um but obviously we get him from the very beginning of season three so one of the things that we noticed that we really loved was the relationship between Azriel and mrs coulter and i wondered if you had a view on that how that kind of story was written just because you know we do see inklings of things that we don't get in the books between those two which was really juicy to watch Mm, that's i would use the word juicy to describe their dynamic too i'm really i'm i guess it's it's sort of linked to what i was saying before about what mrs coulter is learning love is and i think 
what I always found interesting about their relationship. Azrael, Mrs. Coulter, she's married to somebody else. He's this maverick kind of free thinker. Of course, they were attracted to each other. Of course, they were, even though seemingly they're on they've got such different ideology there's there's you know she's so linked with the with the church and he's so rogue but actually there's there's an incredible sort of almost like archetypal it's like it's a little bit like it's like an opera it's like magic flute it's like you know the the queen of the night and the sun king you know it's it's two massive mother father archetypes and um I was really interested about the idea that they were they both had to sort of learn that the thing they they're both humbled really by this story. They both have to learn that it's not about them. And I and I love that particularly when it comes to Azrael because the glimpses that we do see of him in the book, he's he's so arrogant, isn't he? He's just so arrogant. And it's so it's it's wonderfully satisfying to have the opportunity to take him down a peg or two, I think. Um and um to have his, you know, seemingly in, inconsequential, troublesome scrap of a daughter exceed all of his ambition. I find that deeply satisfying. Um, and, and also quite moving his, his turnaround at the end, I think, I hope is quite moving that, that he take eventually he, he takes it on the chin at the very last, he takes it on the chin and they realize, they come to realize together that the purpose of their love was not each other's satisfaction, but in a way was to, to bring Lyra into existence. Um, and I think that that there's something very profound about that and I've always kind of loved that idea anyway that it's quite poetic that the idea that maybe there's a there's the force driving people to fall in love is their is the fate of their unborn children you know willing them to be um there's something it feels very fated their their affair doesn't it Mm, oh yeah definitely some of my Absolutely. favorite bits um that have kind of made me laugh out loud in a <laughs> fuck you Azriel kind of way have been the moments when people have told him how bloody brilliant his daughter is and he just looks so dumbfounded because he just doesn't see it um and obviously James McAvoy's brought that to the screen really well but the way that it's written is just so beautifully done like and anytime somebody tells him how great his kid is and he's like what it's like yeah you suck <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's what's so great about these books is that in any other normal adventure story Azriel would be would be the main character he'd be the hero in it right and you can tell that he thinks he is the main character even though nobody's told him he's not <laughs> totally speaking of characters strong character is there a particular character um that you have just enjoyed writing the most is there someone that you're like their scene is coming up and you're like yes absolutely i mean working with with um ruth and simone it's, it's got to be Miss Coulter and, and Mary Malone. I just, anytime those two women are on screen, writing dialogue for them is just, just a joy. It's just a joy. It's so rare that you, you write something and it sounds even better than you had in, had it in your head. Um, and it's also been a complete joy being able to discuss all of this with them. Like they're both so smart and Ruta too, actually, you know, so many of the cast are so engaged and, and brilliant 
um, to talk to about these, as you as you well know, um, deep thinkers about what these stories mean, and not just looking at their own characters, but really the sort of wider themes of the of, of the of the show. It's been it's been a, a real joy. That aspect has been probably the most enjoyable. And uh, yeah, Mary is just Simone. Just is Mary, isn't she? I just couldn't believe it when we found her. I remember watching the casting tape of her as Mary, and Dan and I were just like, oh, "She's it. She's Mary." <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> Yes, hundred oh, percent. She is. I think the same with Ruth as well. Like she obviously, she isn't. She isn't Mrs. Coulter because obviously she's. Um, Ruth is a lovely, lovely woman, but she embodies her so well. And she's got such extraordinary grasp on her character too. She really pushed me. It was. It was. It was very enlivening to talk to her about who, why, about always the motivations and the nuances. Of the choices she was making. One thing that's just popped into my head that is not on our list of questions is obviously writing on a show like His Dark Materials is, is different to any other show because you are writing for a lot of characters, you're writing for them and their demon. Yeah. How was that process? How do you kind of figure out what Pans is and what Lyra is and the, and the same with Asriel Stelmaria? I like to think, I mean, this is you know, from the book, but I like to think that a demon gets away with saying stuff to you that no one else does. Um, you know, no one else could take the piss out of Azrael. Stal Maria could, can give him a cheeky nudge, I think. Um, and I, I love that because they're part of you, because they're your soul, because they're your... So so they're, they're probably the most likely people to be able to rib you and tease you and I, I I like the potential for that it, it, it's a little bit heartbreaking for me how often I would write a demon line and then it wasn't able to be shot because it's just so expensive to do the demons it's just so expensive so that was that's that's hard because you know you but you work within those parameters I, I hope I still got enough sort of cheekiness um uh, and dynamics between characters and their demons. I, I always wanted more, though. I'm afraid I'm just I'm greedy. But my episodes were by far the most expensive. Already, I was in deep trouble for how expensive my episodes were. It feels really it feels illegal at the moment because at the time we're recording this, we've not nobody's seen it yet except for us because we're special. The final episode, the final episode is your baby, and it is beautiful. Oh, thank you. How did you even go about approaching that episode, knowing it is the conclusion to such an epic trilogy? What were kind of like the initial things that you just had to like write down that you knew you had to do? Or, you know, just how do you even get your head around it? With massive trepidation, um, just it was a huge responsibility. I felt a lot of pressure, but I also felt, <laughs> this is my deluded self, I also felt like, I am the one to do this. I'm so excited. I'm like, I know how this should be. And I just wanted to stick as closely to the book as possible. I just, I knew that I needed space in Eden. It had to have space. Because for me, my favourite parts of the book are Lyra and Will falling in love. And and there's so much beauty in that and so much payoff after the struggles. My God, we put them through hell, literally. And so I wanted to make sure that we had enough time, that we had, that we ate all our candy, the deliciousness of them loving each other before it's cruelly snatched away. 
So that's why I felt like it needed to be a whole episode of quite sort of calm, uh, considered and and tender. I just wanted tenderness because that's what I that's what the the ending of the book gives me is is, is tenderness. So um, I absolutely loved writing it, but I have to tell you that I cried writing every I was I was like permanently crying my boyfriend used to come into my office and be like still <laughs> like lady please and I'd be like <laughs> and I I I cried rewriting I, I I cried every time I rewrote it too and I cry every time I watch it so it's a lot of crying but um it the first draft came out very easily actually you know it compared to everything else it came out incredibly easily and as a whole and it was the least changed of any of the scripts um it was it was sort of miraculous because there's so much rewriting that happens on the show but it was a beautiful thing that that sort of came out whole and that's because that section of the book is so ripe for adaptation it's so easy it's so, it's, the, it's the opposite to the to episode 6 and 7 in a way which are very very complex to figure out how you're going to make such metaphorical happenings literal for tv very difficult to portray a celestial battle but a love story with Malefa, i mean you know what's not to like it does have that it is uh we did feel when we were watching it because we we kind of binged the whole season together so that we felt we could talk about it for our episodes and we but that the eighth episode wasn't up yet and we'd watched it and it came to this epic thing and Azrael and um Marissa are falling in slow motion and it's all very 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 epic and so coming into that final episode did feel like being wrapped in a little warm blanket like a bit of aftercare after that battle of like the real intensity and then obviously you made us feel really safe and really warm and had a lovely, lovely, lovely time with the Malefra. And then you tore all of our hearts out and showed them <laughs> to us. How um, dare you? <laughs> which was quite rude, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. Listen, I was very, very tempted. N- no word of a lie. I was very tempted just to rewrite the entire thing. Just to be like, you know what? We get together. The end. Happily ever after. Because... That's what I want. I do. Just like Philip, come on. That's what I want. I still, I'm still, I've still got hope every time I read the story, and I still read it. I, I still have hope every time that somehow Zephania, like, come on, Zephania, come on, girl, come, come on, girl. You're an angel. Sort it out. No, no. <laughs> I had to. I had to say the line, but um, no, it was heartbreaking. I railed against it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for us. We watched it. I, Rich, I'm gonna have to like screenshot our chat while we were watching it because we watched this one separately. We watched the others together, and then we watched this one. We like press play at the same time, and like we're chatting on WhatsApp while we're watching it. And honestly, it's my favorite episode of his dark materials as a whole. We were nervous. We were like, "What's gonna happen?" You know. And as soon as it started, we were like, "The turn of this, like everything that's happening, it just feels so right and so perfect." And I think the the acting everything in that episode just comes together so perfectly everything's elevated and it's just so wonderful um and one of the things that we I think the thing that actually set me off crying and one of the things that I know that especially our listeners will be so happy about is the decision to make Mary queer we have always read her as being queer. As soon as she was telling the marzipan story and she said the word she, I think I messaged Rich being like, she, in like capital letters. It was, oh, 
incredible. How did you come to that decision? Like, wh- what was that process like? I mean, Simone did messages and say that she'd kind of always, see- always seen her as being queer. But yeah, that was wonderful. I think Hit Dark Materials is quite a queer text, actually. I think it's it's full of that, actually. And it seemed like quite an organic... It just seemed right, honestly. Um, I'm so glad you liked it, because that I was... I was on set when it was being filmed and it was, I cried again because <laughs> it was so beautifully performed and Simone's just amazing. It just seemed like a good good decision to make her, her lover a woman and, and, and quite natural. And, um, but honestly, to me, it, it's not that important about whether the love she feels is for a, a woman or for a man. For me, it's like, you know, it's not important to her character per se, Although I I love the fact that you respond to that and it's it's it is you know the more stories we have of diversity and you know queerness I think the better, um, but the, the the point in, in about Mary's this Mary in this moment is that telling a story is that the transgression that she's talking about is love is the is the is doing the loving you know, and unfortunately queer love is still an example of love that's seen as transgressive which it, it shouldn't be. Um, but it felt like, it felt like, felt like the right thing in that moment. And I think her organic and prompted by a child, her organic telling of that story in such a heartfelt and authentic way, um, as that, that being her moment of, of sort of serpentine manipulation, you know, as it were in inverted commas, um, it's just perfect, isn't it? It's just perfect because it's the most it's the most beautiful um moment, one of the most beautiful moments in the book, um, I think. And and also you just it just takes you back, doesn't it, to your first crush, to to like realizing that amazing feeling of maybe they like me back. Oh my god, what if they do? What if they don't? What if they do? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Truly. And Simone delivers that so beautifully. It's so beautifully told. And I also really loved that. Um, you stole the tell them stories line from the Harpies and gave it to Atal because Atal is definitely the character that would tell them that. And I really love that that line, which is so iconic and so important in the books and the heart of the books, stayed um, even with the adaptations that were made to kind of kind of how the Harpies worked a little bit and like some of what we heard from them. But like giving that to the Malefa was so perfect because it was so it's so much more them. Yeah, I had to. um it was, I mean, we all, uh, Amelia and I talked about, a little bit about this, but the harpies were the most expensive to to to, to characterise, to, to make. So we wanted more storytelling. We wanted more of the harpies. We wanted, and we wanted, the, the thing that I think I've wanted more than anything, if I could if I could go back and change anything, but I, I obviously can't, but would be to have more of the relationship between Atal and Mary, because I think the humour of the Malefa is something that always just made me completely. I mean, Malefa world is the place I'd like to live, and um, but we could only use them very sparingly. So I wanted to make sure that every word that Atal said was um, infused with compassion and empathy. Yeah, I, I, it, it still saddens me a little bit that we don't have more of Atal, but um, you can't have everything, can you? <laughs> That's true. Um, I guess. You you spoke about it a little bit there with with the harpies. Was there anything else in terms of limitations on something's too expensive, or you know we can't do this for a certain reason that you really wanted to get into? 
you know, either an episode from season two or season three. Yeah. Or like fun problems that you had to solve because of that. Oh, yeah. 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 There were loads of those. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was it was like there was probably every week there was some sort of Sophie's choice for me about like either you can have Tialis and Salmachia in the land of the dead or you can have a sequence with the harpies where they they drive Lyra mad you know you can either have this or that and I'd be like I can't choose we need both and um you know but we inevitably had to choose I'm I'm sad that we didn't have the Galavespians in the land of the dead I'm sad that we don't have um the the ghosts join the battle I really wanted that sequence I wrote that whole sequence um but I'm thrilled that we got um we got uh Joppery back because I really for a while for a while we weren't it was looking like we couldn't get him back and that would have been rubbish so I was thrilled even though it's it's only a a small scene um I you know in the books obviously Joppery's part of the battle and so is um Lee and they go into the battle together and I I had written that whole sequence but we 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 couldn't do that unfortunately but in the end I think it's sort of okay that we have this moment because of the way that the episodes were divided um it would have it's no it's, it still would have been really cool to have the ghost join the battle <laughs> at the end it's fine it's fine <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that um this again just just came to me one of the things that me and Rachel always talk about in the third book and one of like I guess the one of the moments where you're like wow is this is this for children is where Yorick eats Lee Scorsby's body (laughs) so disappointed we didn't get that (laughs) well that didn't make it into the show and like I can see why (laughs) but was there ever like discussion around including that yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember. It wasn't it wasn't in one of my episodes, so I didn't I, I wasn't across that. But I mean I dig it. I'm into it. I like the brutality of it. I think it's kinda cool. It's like, hi my friend, there you are in your final resting place. Hmm, a little peckish. Here we go. <laughs> but I think it's also, you know, honoring honoring the soul of your dead friend and I love I love the brutality of Yorick. I mean I love the sort of it's there's such such clarity. They don't lie. The the pants of Bjorn don't lie. They don't they don't fuck about basically, do they? There's like if there's grub to be had, then they'll eat it. And I admire and respect that. Absolutely. <laughs> also, it's a polar bear. For goodness' sake, save the polar bears. They need to eat. Oh, of course, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any bits? Tell me about the bits that you missed from the show. Which bits stung? Because there's always going to be bits that sting. I just felt like Lyra and Pan were too mean to each other on the jetty. I, I was, I was like, I, I can't tell if it's more oh, heartbreaking yes. or less heartbreaking yeah. that they're being mean instead of like brave. Um, I, I, yeah, I was like, I don't know if you're breaking my heart more or less at this point. You've given me two versions. I've got two versions of this scene in my head that I have to live with forever now. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. I think for me... I guess the harpies, but like you kind of explained it. Like I, I love the bit in the book where the harpies, you know, screaming at Lyra, screaming liar at her, and things like that. And I guess it's not that I particularly missed it. I I enjoyed how they were changed, how they looked, and I enjoyed how it was written into the show. But yeah, I think I would have wanted a bit more of them. But obviously, you explained that they were super expensive, so you know, 
and totally understandable. Yeah, <laughs> we all did. We all did. We all wanted. We all want to do all of it. That's the thing: is that we all want to do all of it, and um, and alas, <laughs> we couldn't. Um, and so it is. It's it's a it's a compromise. But hopefully, enough of what remains um, gives the right. You know, we had there's still a little candy there for you. Oh, absolutely. I felt like the solutions that were there made perfect sense as well. So, like, we were sad that we didn't get to see um, Talis and Salmachia in the world of the day. We kind of lost Talis altogether, really. He just, yeah, bye. Yeah, we did. We did. I know. And I love that moment in the book with the dragonfly where you, you can tell it's such a beautiful visual um, indication of how their life force is sort of waning as they go through the land of the dead, the, 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 the light of the dragonfly. I, I thought that was so cinematic, but um, harpies, galavespians, harpies, galavespians. Yeah, but I kind of love how you gave some of that conflict because in the books, Will is very much backing Lyra up the whole time. And so by giving the way that Tialis is constantly questioning them and their motivations and whether it's wise, giving some of that doubt to Will meant for some really like uh, interesting interactions between Daphne and Amir, which we wouldn't have got to see otherwise. So it did, it it was still really nice. <laughs> I'm glad. But I do think, you know, just to say, I think season three overall for us, I think the fan base were always a little bit like, oh, well, season one and two have been amazing. Season three, The Amber Spyglass is an absolutely bananas book yeah yeah and honestly we i think i can speak for both of us i think it's just done you've all done a really 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 good job and i honestly think that for all the stuff that you might have had to change and like kind of what rich was saying the the main crux of it the main story is still there and plus we get like added things like i really loved in the first couple of episodes like the fleshing out of a gunway in his story and you know marissa and asriel and you know there's so there's so much there i mean i guess just well done because it's just such a great season and i think it might actually be my favorite season of, of the show oh that's so great to hear thank you i really it was um yeah, it was a mad process and one that it was a huge privilege to be a part of. Huge privilege to be a part of and it was worth it. It was worth it. We we all went I think we all went through a bit of the the land of the dead ourselves as we were making the show to try and try and figure it out, particularly with the celestial battle. How on earth do you portray a celestial battle? But it ended up being I I wanted it to be so psychological. You know, I love the idea of Azrael and Mrs. Coulter coming in to the clouded mountain and having to really be tested, be tested by this all-seeing, all-powerful angel who could see inside their minds. Um, that that that's so fun uh, to me. Um, and when you think about the battle in the book, a lot of it happens. A lot of it is actually sort of Will and Lyra in a, in a muddy puddle, sort of as. <laughs> As, um, <laughs> as polar, uh, polar bears, armored bears go leaping across the screen, sort of thing. You know? um, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, there was also I really missed um, the, the idea of seeing all of the Galavespians all together in, with their little spurs and stuff. I, yeah, uh, I love that in the book, but uh, it's su- it's it's such a different beast. Television, it's it's such a different format. Oh well, I hope other people enjoy it as much as you did. Absolutely certain they will. <laughs> I'm honestly sure they will. It's 
especially that last episode. You're gonna you're yeah, gonna no. break a million hearts, you know. <laughs> Millions of hearts will be broken when that episode ends. <laughs> I guess we yeah, we had like three questions in regards to the the bench scene. One is how could you? <laughs> three is how dare you. <laughs> yeah. I can only apologize. I can only apologize. One of the fun things I got to do though in season two, the first episode I wrote for this, you know, season episode two, season two, I am... Um, I sort of planted the bench in in that episode. Mm-hmm. And the internet yeah. broke. <laughs> it's such a great Easter egg, right? But if, if Will and Lyra had been to Will's Oxford, wouldn't it be great if they decided to go back to that bench because it was the place that they had had, you know, that they, they, they loved that place together already? I don't know. Maybe I'm just making it even more painful. I mean, yes. No, it was perfect. <laughs> I mean, I literally, so like when we were watching it, I message. I was messaging Rach, obviously, and I, I said to her, I was like, I just, I've got this feeling that there's going to be a scene at the end where they're both sat on the bench separately and I'm going to die and I'm going to quit the podcast because I won't be able to do it. And then right at the end, obviously we get the like, the passage of time, the little montage of them both going back to the bench. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't talk about this. I can't do it. No, I know. <laughs> I, I, I know. I, I totally hear you. And then the bit at the end, the very the coda at the end, that was written by Philip. Did you know that? Oh no, we didn't know that. Wow, that's all right. Nice little tidbit there. I love that. When I see him, I'm just going to be like, "You're going to have to." Sorry, Philip. You're just going to have to write that Lyra and Will somehow, when they're older, somehow something happens and they're able to be in each other's world again. I just. That's all I want. It's just a small request. Just a little idea. Just a thought. In that third book of dust, pull it out of the bag, Phil. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) That was probably the most exciting thing about working on the show was occasionally getting an email from him. When when that arrived in my inbox, I'd be like, oh my God. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Hyperventilate. Yeah, it was pretty cool getting to discuss folklore of his dark materials with him. Was there anything in that that was like your favourite thing that you were like, oh, I feel like I know some secret canon now. Like I, this is access to the source. Like, was there anything in there that you were like, oh, as a fan, everything makes sense? I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you, Rach. That would be. Oh no! <laughs> oh, <my> God. <laughs> no, he was just so. I mean, even his emails, you can imagine, are just written beautifully. And um, I was grappling with how to tell the story of, of Azrael and, and and Mrs. Coulter and what what would happen inside the clouded mountain and I was sort of throwing around ideas and he was always so respectful about some of the bananas ideas that I had um and gently guiding me back to you know the the the, the path of righteousness oh incredible incredible so we'll start to to wrap it up and we always ask the same at least the same two questions to everyone I guess three now that we speak to so first of all what would your demon be? Oh God, I've known my demon for many a year, many a year. Um, my demon would be- I did assume. Yeah, my <laughs> demon would be a, a truffle pig. One of those pigs that uh, searches for truffles in the forest. That's so good. <laughs> Incredible, <laughs> incredible. Um, curious, sort of greedy, just love, love a pig, I do. Um, <laughs> although uh, actually it was quite fun on season two, I got my dog, my puppy, Bernard, who's a cavapoo, and I used to carry him around in a bag. So when I was on set, I'm sure I wasn't meant to be taking him on set, but um, when I was when I was in the studios, I um I used to carry him around with me. So he was literally like my little demon. 
that's very cute. <laughs> that's very sweet. Before we ask the very last two questions, I want to ask, we always have to ask this in an interview because we never know. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that you wish we had? Is there any little story you want to tell? Anything that you're like, nobody ever asked me this and I wish I could tell them. I wanted to talk about negative capability a little bit because I just think it's such an important part of the of the book. And um, and I was so chuffed that I got to put it in episode six between Lyra and Mary because I think one of the things that, that sometimes gets lost with TV adaptations is like some of the more tricky intellectual um, grapplings and, and, you know, particularly because there's a propensity to simplify with, with television. And um, it's so important that some of the intellectual naughtiness of the story is, is, is in there. And so I, it's one of my favorite things, one of my favorite concepts negative capability and, and it's the way that the alethiometer works it's the way that the knife works that that sense of having your brain in a liminal space um and i think it's a really important idea yeah you know it's the, it's the ability to to perceive and recognize truths beyond the reach of facts or reason and i love that and i think it's a really important ty- idea for our for right now for our age that you can be in a, in a gray space in a liminal space of not knowing that's one of my favorite things about the whole trilogy is that that's at the root of it absolutely that's something that we talk about a lot just like how how the alethiometer works how the knife works and all that kind of like intricacy involved in it and and what kind of i guess what kind of person would you have to be to be able to go into that that space and and yeah it's yeah it's just great i love it i think anyone could go in there i think i think it's a bit like meditation like Mm. i think it's not it's not hankering after anything is it it's not it's it's, it's quietening your your busy busy mind you could all do i mean i said i could certainly do with a bit more of that i mean yeah i mean i could give it a try but whether whether my brain would allow it is another question <laughs> i feel like that that space could probably feel different for different people i don't think i could get into that space without having something to do with my hands some kind of fidget mm. some kind of knitting some kind of task to do because I have to have busy hands but I'm sure there's other people who would need no distraction whatsoever and to be in like an empty space you know speaking of alethiometers one of our favorite questions if you had an alethiometer if you had access to an alethiometer and an alethiometer reader what would you ask them really good question I think I wouldn't controversial Ooh. I think I wouldn't because I think actually sometimes when it comes to big questions of fate, I think it's best not to know. But I'm sorry if that's a boring answer. No, we, do you know what? We've never had that answer before, so it's a great answer. Mm-hmm. Not even just like, what What should I have for dinner? Um. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? I think that I would like to go down that, the route that you just mentioned, but I think I'd be too tempted to actually ask a question if I had access we had um we had a guest on called lark and they host a harry potter podcast and we had them on and uh, their question was and i loved it so much it was should i bother saving for retirement or is the world just gonna end at some point soon <laughs> i love that question yeah okay maybe i'll steal that question <laughs> <laughs> yeah is my insurance policy worth it? <laughs> yeah <laughs> what would you ask rich I feel like I'd like pick an unsolved mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some kind of like historical unsolved mystery, like 
something that went missing in the Bermuda Triangle or some kind of like conspiracy theory that I could just blow out of the water. That's great. Get famous in conspiracy theory world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but then you'd be driven mad because you wouldn't be able to prove it. Exactly. That's true. That's the danger of the alethiometer. Very true. Okay, so final question before we let you go is you already mentioned how much you loved the Malefa world, but so this might already be your answer, but if you could cut through to any type of world with a subtle knife, where would you choose to go? Or what would that world be like? I mean, I'd want I'd want to be in a world where the dust was was flowing back into it. So but I'd want to be with all my family and friends too. Maybe it would look a bit more like this world, but with less the world is a scary place to me right now. I don't like what's going on in the world generally. I'd like I'd like a version of this world where there wasn't so much horror, I think. <laughs> or Malefa world is a cheerier answer, I yeah, suppose. That's a good answer. Like I think I would probably choose like a similar route to that, because you know, the world is a dark place. It is. It is. What about you, Rach? I feel like who gave us this answer? I think it might have been Lynn. I think it might have been Lynn one world who just said a world where there's just enough. There's enough of everything. Yeah. Like everybody's got enough of everything. So there's no need to fight over it. Yeah. Oh, Lynn, what a man. (laughs) So disappointing. Why is he so nice? (laughs) It's infuriating, isn't it? It's like, wow, you'd be that amazing. God, I love stealing other people's really good answers. It's great. (laughs) One of the perks of this podcast. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Thank you so much, Francesca. Honestly, this has been so much fun. Oh, it's been the best. Lovely to talk to you guys. And I will see you. I'll see you at the premiere. Yes, you will. Yeah. Oh my gosh, how exciting. Yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> we'll have done it. By the time you're listening to this, you'll have seen all of our amazing glamorous outfits that we've chosen because Oh my god. I can I can tell you now. I'm looking into the, my alethiometer and I'm telling you you don't look like a waiter. <laughs> thank you so much. Honestly, thank you. Maybe that yeah, that's the question we should all ask the alethiometer actually. It's change our answers. <laughs> <Is face outfit>? Okay. <laughs> what should I do with my hair? That would be my answer. That would be my answer. <laughs> But yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Yes, thank you. Not at all. It was a total joy. Oh my God. How how good was it? How great was that? How great was it? It was so great. I honestly, I fucking love doing this podcast when we get to do stuff like this because mm-hmm. it's so interesting to me just to hear all of Francesca's stories, all of the stuff that like she wanted to see in the show that they couldn't get in, all the stuff that like we asked questions about that she told us why they couldn't get it. I love that so much. And yeah, it always makes me kind of just like, I feel like you could get your feathers ruffled over things not being Mm. included. But then when you find out that that the people um, that are making it want this stuff as much as you do and that it's literally just physically impossible or budget constraints or whatever, and they're just doing what feels right for what they can physically actually do and everyone's just trying their hardest like it just it makes us watch the show really differently definitely because whenever there's a decision that we're like hey that's not how it happened in the books we both go I bet I know why I bet somebody fought for that to happen and I bet there was a really good reason why it couldn't or a really good reason why it made more sense to do something else and I love that I love that me too (laughs) it's so wonderful and yeah just thank you thank you Francesca for taking the time to speak to us 
honestly the chat was so great and thank you to to liam from the his dark materials pr team and also just the entire his dark materials pr team um mm-hmm. for setting this up and also dan mcculloch exec producer of the tv show who told us we need to talk to francesca you were right we did need to you were right we yeah. bloody loved it <laughs> exactly so thank thank you all and yeah i guess we just hope you all all of you listeners really enjoyed it as much as we did because honestly we fucking loved it Mm-hmm. You can all go back and rewatch all of it now and have yeah. another cry. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Her Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at HDMPod, and you can email us at herdartmaterialspod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rich. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. I'm Fair, and when I'm not crying about a bench, you can find me talking about Paramore on my other podcast, Still Into You. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or on social media at Still Into You Pod. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks and Francesca about demons and dust and why it's so mean for her to make all of us cry I am making cute and magical arty things you can find me over on Instagram at rachemakes on Twitter and TikTok at rach underscore makes and over on my online shop rachemakes.co.uk a huge thanks to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings and an even bigger thank you to Francesca for her time and we'll see you soon and don't forget keep telling stories and all will be well Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Francesca. Thank you. So good.